0: story four of the times red cross storybook by famous novelists serving in his majesty's forces by various this LibriVox recording is in the public domain story four an impossible person by w b maxwell royal Fusiliers. using the cant phrase people often said that general sir john beckford was a quite impossible person a brave soldier a true gentleman a splendid creature physically just so but rendering himself absurd and futile by notions so old-fashioned that they had been universally exploded before he was born a man who obstinately refused to move with the times who in manner costume and every idea belonged and seemed proud to belong to the past even his own relatives admitted the impossibility of him when at the age of sixty he gave effect to the most old-fashioned of all conceivable notions by marrying for love if an elderly widower with a little son of nine wants somebody to make a home and help to rear the child he should invite some middle-aged female cousin to come to his assistance but if he wants a charming attractive girl to renounce the joys and hopes of youth in order to soothe and gladden his dull remnant of years well he oughtn't to want it and really it is not quite nice when he does lady jane armitage an ancient aunt put this thought into very plain words and forced sir john to listen to them a mistake not even a fair bargain what is cynthia to get on her side a seat in a carriage a liberal dress allowance perhaps a few more loose sovereigns than she has been accustomed to carry in that silly little gold purse of hers the idea of money said sir john gruffly has never entered cynthia's head perhaps not but what else can you offer her to hold your landing-net while you do your stupid fishing to perform the duties of a nursery governess for jack to enjoy the privilege of playing hostess when you entertain half a dozen other generals and their frumpish wives sir john echoed his aunt's last adjective ironically yes said lady jane but i'm different i know i'm a frump and your friends aren't aware of their misfortune no john i tell you frankly it isn't a fair bargain sir john bit his grey moustache ran a strong hand through his shock of grey hair contracted his heavy brows and then laughed and shrugged his shoulders inexplicable to you aunt jane well let's leave it at that but be kind to cynthia all the same won't you save her from the other frumps and ceasing to laugh he stared at lady jane almost fiercely he was one of those men who consider it beneath their dignity to betray tender emotion and perhaps look sternest and most forbidding when they are feeling unusually soft and gentle at any rate he would not explain to his aunt that he believed the marriage to be an eminently fair bargain an old-fashioned exchange love for love as much love on the girl's side as on his Lady Jane made no promise, but she proved very kind indeed to her new niece, endeavouring to find innocent amusement for pretty Cynthia, acting as her chaperone, watching over her, and growing fonder and fonder of her. She said that the young Lady Beckford was a model wife and a pattern stepmother. No one could have been more devoted to or wiser in her training of Master Jack. Now, after five years, the boy was ready to go to public school, and during these long summer days a holiday tutor had been giving him final preparation, ultimate crammed knowledge, and topmost polish of tone and manners. August had been spent at the Beckford's Country House in Devonshire, and the early weeks of September at their flat in Victoria Street. Lady Jane approved of everything that concerned these arrangements, except one thing— she approved of the public school of the engaging of a holiday tutor of all the care devotion and forethought with which the little man was being launched from the home circle but she did not approve of the fact that sir john had thrown the whole burden on cynthia's slender shoulders while he did his stupid salmon fishing four hundred miles away in scotland not quite fair to cynthia leaving her all alone with a schoolboy and his tutor lady jane at considerable inconvenience ran down to devonshire to cheer and enliven her came back to london and at worse inconvenience stayed there so as to be handy to act as companion chaperone advisory ally whenever cynthia wanted her but cynthia wanted her scarcely at all and allowed poor lady jane to perceive at last that uninvited companions are sometimes a tedium rather than a solace it was the last night of the holidays to-morrow master jack and his tutor would disappear from victoria street dinner had been ordered at an early hour and jack was scampering through his meal with excited swiftness one last treat had been arranged for him he was to be dispatched to a theatre presently in charge of george the footman "'I wish you were coming,' said Jack, as he turned to Mr. Ridsdale, his eyes expressing eloquently enough the hero-worship that is so easy to kindle in young and ingenuous hearts. "'It would be scarcely polite,' said Mr. Ridsdale, "'for both of us to desert Lady Beckford.' "'No,' said Jack, "'but I wish she'd come with us,' and turned to his stepmother. "'Won't you change your mind?' "'I really don't feel up to it, Jack. I'm tired. I've had a headache since the day before yesterday.' "'It might drive the headache away,' said Jack eagerly. "'They say it's a tip-top piece.' His stepmother and his tutor both smiled as they looked at his bright and animated face. Lady Beckford's smile was simply affectionate. Mr. Ridsdale's was indulgent and patronizing. "'A rousing melodrama, Jack. All noise and stamping.' yes cried jack enthusiastically murder and sudden death just what i like but not said mr ridsdale exactly indicated as a cure for a headache well if i can't persuade you and jack turned to yates the butler has george changed his things yes sir then i'll be off jack pushed his plate away with a gesture that elegant mr ridsdale could not approve of it was too childish for a boy of fourteen a little more polish required in spite of so much polishing good-night and jack kissed lady beckford i shan't say good-night to you mr ridsdale because you won't have turned in before i get back will you no i'll sit up for you said mr ridsdale smiling spoke with rather strained facetiousness i'll be waiting to hear how the heroine was extricated from her misfortune how the villain got scored off by the funny man and how virtue triumphed all around in the end there cut along your escort is waiting for you master jack hurried gaily from the dining-room and his boyish voice sounded for a few moments as he prattled to the footman then the hall door to the flat opened and shut, and the two elders were left alone to finish their dinner at leisure. Ah! Mr. Ridsdale drew in his breath with a little sigh and looked at his hostess, spoke quietly and meditatively. I know you often read people's thoughts, but I wonder if you could guess what I'm thinking now. I'll try if you like. You were thinking that, perhaps, after all, Jack is too young still for the rough-and-tumble life of a big school.' oh no said mr ridsdale carelessly jack'll do all right they'll soon lick him into shape no and his tone softened and deepened though he was speaking almost in a whisper no i was thinking this is the last night of my-my holidays Uh, possibly the last time i shall ever sit in this pleasant room or see you wearing that beautiful dress or hear you playing classical music that i don't understand but love to listen to truly it seemed a pleasant room, a remarkably pleasant room for a London flat. The evening was just cold enough to justify a fire, and small logs of wood in a basket-grate sent dancing flames to light up the oak panels of the walls. Electric lamps flashed brightly on silver and glass, a golden basket of peaches and another of grapes made the table appear a symbolized announcement of ease, luxury, even of sumptuousness." the butler moving to and fro so promptly and yet so sedately offered one delicate food and stimulating wine it was all very very pleasant pretty things wherever one glanced a mirror in a sculptured frame some blue and white china on a long shelf and seen faintly with the electric light just indicating their existence rows of handsomely bound books behind latticed glass altogether what would be described in stage language as a charming interior any tutor accustomed to the hard seats and coarse fare of a school hall might feel regret at leaving such a room irrevocably and might long afterwards yearn to see again the pretty things that it contained but just now mr ridsdale was looking only at his hostess and he repeated the compliment about her dress i admire you in that more than in any of the others he said softly and rather sorrowfully because it is black i suppose it's quite old but men always like black dresses my husband does the dress was made of velvet with some silver decoration across the front of the bodice and it certainly appeared to be coming in it cynthia beckford looked very slim and young fair-haired but dark-eyed naturally pale but with a rapid flicker of colour a person of frank kind outlook a simple and truthful sort of person and yet with underlying depths of character or sensibility that proved astoundingly interesting to the few people who had studied her closely frenchman would describe her beauty such as it was as belonging to the order that slowly troubles rather than quickly fascinates but i'm not like the general said mr ridsdale i admire that black dress not any black dress he said it with a perceptible insistence quietly but obstinately as if conscious of subtle values in his own taste and unwilling that it should be confounded with the ordinary likes and dislikes of another person even though that person were as worthy and respectable as his temporary employer mr ridsdale was a good-looking man of thirty tall and thin of easy carriage and elegant manners boys big and small among whom he had passed the better part of his life always looked up to him and sometimes adored him as a perfect type of school-trained manhood and girls too were frequently subjugated by his charms he was the sort of man who was not as a rule dreaded by other men as likely to prove a dangerous rival and yet one might well suppose that in certain circumstances he would be dangerous for instance if paying slow and unhindered court to a foolish and otherwise neglected woman the dark eyes the smooth silky voice the insidious flattery of its softening tones might all be effective in a protracted attack on feminine foolishness of a certain age tomorrow he said dreamily tomorrow almost today and he sighed as he took a peach from the gold basket Yates, the butler, had put cigarettes and matches on the table, and was about to leave the room when the outer bell rang shrilly and sharply. "'Who can that be?' said Ridsdale, looking up. "'A visitor? Oh, do tell him to say you're not at home.' The butler paused, waiting for instructions. "'It can't be a visitor,' said Cynthia Beckford, "'some tradesman's messenger.' "'It may be old Lady Jane. She wouldn't come so late as this.' "'I don't know,' said Ridsdale eagerly. "'She comes at all hours. With your headache she would bore you to death.' He leaned forward in his chair and spoke very softly. "'And remember, my last evening, you—you promised that you would play to me.' Cynthia Beckford hesitated a moment, and then told the butler that she was not at home. "'Yes, my lady, not at home to anybody?' "'No.' The flicker of colour showed in her pale cheeks as she added explanatorily to Ridsdale, "'It can't be anybody of importance.' Mr. Ridsdale sat listening. Then he got up and spoke with an impatience that he did not attempt to conceal. "'That fool has let someone in—a man!' "'Yes, a man's heavy footstep in the hall and a man's voice, loud and assured, not making polite inquiries, but issuing curt directions.' I have left my tackle and luggage at Euston. Get a cab presently and go and fetch it. Take this ticket. Yes, Sir John. Her ladyship is in the dining-room. Open the door, then. Cynthia Beckford ran across the room to meet her husband, but encumbered with a handbag and a travelling rug, he was not able at once to accept her welcoming embrace. Well, Cynthia, my dear? Ridsdale, my dear fellow, how are you? But where's Jack? General Beckford put his handbag on a chair by the sideboard, dropped his rug upon the floor, and, coming to the table, took Master Jack's vacated seat. "'We have sent him off to a theatre, said Cynthia, with George. "'I'd no idea that you were coming home, of course.' "'Oh, I see. Gone to the play. With George.' "'We were all three going,' said Mr. Ridsdale, but Lady Beckford had a headache, so I strongly advised her to stay at home.' And he smiled." rather fortunate or you would have had a double disappointment it would have been my own fault and the general smiled too i ought to have sent you a telegram cynthia what has brought you back so unexpectedly impulse fish not rising asked ridsdale no wretchedly poor sport so this morning i suddenly made up my mind that i'd had enough of it and that home sweet home was the place for me well well what about the home news cynthia beckford was instructing yates as to her husband's dinner but the general declared that he had eaten all he wanted in the train i can't call it dinner and he laughed good-humouredly but nothing more thank you unless perhaps a biscuit and a whisky and soda now sit down don't let me disturb you go on with your dessert Ridsdale, and then i'll join you in a cigarette if my lady permits us and he bowed to his wife with the antiquated air of courtesy that always seems so odd in these free and easy times. They sat together, talking of Jack's health, his progress, his future career, and Mr. Ridsdale was able to speak most favorably of his pupil's prospects. "'Capital!' said the general. "'I'm enormously indebted to you, Ridsdale. You seem to have done wonders. But I knew you would. I knew the boy was in good hands.' seen much of aunt jane he asked his wife abruptly yes cynthia was looking at the painted decoration on her dessert place and she answered slowly yes aunt jane was with us at linton for a fortnight quite a fortnight i know but i mean after that she is in london isn't she then cynthia smilingly confessed that the long fortnight in devonshire had exhausted the attraction of lady jane's society and that she had lately avoided it she is too kind for words but cynthia looked at her husband deprecatingly dear aunt jane can be rather boring the general laughed tolerantly ah no companion for you she belongs to another generation his bushy eyebrows contracted and his voice became grave my generation. We old folk are poor companions. She doesn't belong to your generation, Cynthia flushed, and her lips trembled. She put out her hand and laid it on her husband's arm. You are the best of companions, a companion that I have missed dreadfully. There, General Beckford laughed gaily. Did you hear that, Ridsdale? That's the sort of thing we old chaps like, even if we aren't vain enough to think we deserve it leave that where it is yates yates was about to remove the handbag and take it to his master's room very good sir john and you can go to euston now no hurry take a bus yes sir john smoking permitted and the general bowed again to his wife light your cigarette ridsdale no i mustn't have any coffee on top of whiskey and soda the little group at the table sat comfortably enough and talked lightly and easily but somehow the presence of general beckford had destroyed the graceful charm of the room he looked too big too rough and shaggy for his delicately pretty surroundings his gray hair was rumpled and unbrushed after the journey his coarse gray suit suggested wild moorlands and brawling streams his whole aspect was savagely picturesque rather than neatly refined no contrast could have been greater than that offered by the smooth well-brushed nicely polished young man who sat opposite to him on the other side of the small round table the electric light shone upon mr ridsdale's black cloth and black silk his stiff white shirt and soft white waistcoat his jeweled buttons, his pearl studs, his butterfly tie, his white hand, fingering a cigarette tube, his smooth forehead, and his sleek hair plastered and brushed back with studious art and infinite care. He seemed elegant, shapely, even beautiful, when you compared him with his travel-stained, unkempt host. All the charm had been banished by the newcomer, it was another room now and the ugly handbag on the distant chair seemed like an aggressive symbol of proprietorship it seemed to be saying that although one might wish the general at the deuce one could not ask him to go there because in sober fact the room belonged to him yet to an understanding eye there was something noble and knight-like about the man the ruggedness seemed blended with a certain fine simplicity and even the old-fashioned tricks of manner and speech by removing him from the commonplace mode of the hour served to stimulate an effort to get at the man's real character certainly no poseur a direct straightforward creature on reflection one might perhaps guess that a young romantic girl whose imagination had been fired by the splendour of his fighting life his deeds of daring and so forth could quite conceivably be cajoled into giving her untried heart to him one more question cynthia the conversation had languished while the general puffed at his second cigarette how's the music have you been assiduous in your practice "'Yes, I've played nearly every evening.' Mr. Ridsdale was conscious of an irksome constraint. Two were company, and three are none. Deciding to leave the husband and wife together, he pushed back his chair and got up. But the general would not let him go. "'Oh, no, no,' he said. "Uh, "'Sit ye down, my dear fellow.' Then to his wife, "'If the headache isn't too bad, play something this evening. Run over your latest studies.' "'Ridsdale and I will follow you directly.' Cynthia Beckford rose obediently and turned towards the drawing-room door. Her husband reached the door before Mr. Ridsdale could get to it, and he held it open for her, bowing low as she passed out. There! He had switched on the light in the other room, and he stood in the doorway watching her. "'Now delight our ears with your deft touch.' Lady Beckford seated herself at the piano and began to play a plaintive and dreaming prelude by Bach. Beautiful! Your hand has not lost its cunning. Now go on playing, and don't think me ungallant if for a few minutes I close the door. A word or two with Ridsdale, on business. But we shall hear you, even through the door. Then he gently, and as if regretfully, shut the drawing-room door and came back to the table. Ridsdale and there was an apologetic tone in the general's lowered voice. "'That wasn't quite honest of me—a ruse. I asked her to play the piano because I didn't want her to disturb us, and I didn't want her to hear what we were saying.' "'Oh, really?' Ridsdale smiled and glanced at the closed door. "'A confidence. I may trust you, mayn't I?' "'Of course. Implicitly, huh? But that goes without saying.' i have trusted you so greatly already haven't i the boy to consign him to your guidance well you know what he is to me i couldn't have better shown the faith i had in you you're very kind general i've done my best with him exactly but well this isn't about the boy it's about myself i am in trouble really i wasn't honest either in my explanation of why i came hurrying home no ridsdale it wasn't a sudden caprice i had serious reasons for coming oh had you yes i am in great trouble and the general looked at ridsdale keenly as if seeking in his impassive face some expression of sympathy or encouragement then he dropped his eyes and paused before he continued speaking i wonder if i ought to tell you yes i will you are one of ourselves we have made you one of ourselves something more than an acquaintance a friend eh yes i'll tell you the whole thing well i'm all attention thank you from the other room came the sound of cynthia's plaintive melody and half consciously listening to it the general seemed to have transferred its wistful cadence to his own voice his manner had changed completely He looked preternaturally grave and sad, as he sat frowning at the tablecloth and tracing a small circle of its pattern with a strong brown finger while he murmured his story. "'No, Ridsdale, what brought me home was a letter—a warning letter—about my wife. Before you tell me any more, may I say this?' as a schoolmaster i often have to deal with anonymous letters and my experience has convinced me that the only thing to do with them is just to chuck them into the just so but this wasn't an anonymous letter no no the writer is a tried friend a person of my own blood i have the letter in my pocket here but i wouldn't bother you to read it the warning conveyed was simple enough it amounted to this i was to guard my wife carefully if i did not want to risk losing her because a man was attacking my peace and honour oh i say mr ridsdale spoke indignantly it would be an insult to lady beckford not to treat such a communication with the absolute contempt and. "'But, my dear Ridsdale,' said the General somberly, "'it is the communication that I have always prepared myself to receive, "'that I have been expecting to receive at any hour in the past few years.' "'Nothing,' said Mr. Ridsdale firmly, "'would persuade me to suspect Lady Begford of—' "'Oh, no, no, of course not. Please leave her out of it. "'I'm not thinking of her. I'm thinking only of myself. "'The attempted blow to me—' Oh, you shouldn't for one moment believe why not said the general sadly one is vain but there are limits to one's vanity one hopes just at first perhaps but later one begins to think and to understand you know with cynthia and me it was a convenient marriage although it wasn't a marriage of convenience indeed no i know that well regard and more than regard entered into it but there was the difference of years at my age one has not the adaptability of youth one cannot change one ways even if one wishes to so i foresaw that with marriage of that sort a crisis sooner or later comes well our crisis has come i i am sure you are mistaken you heard what she said about lady jane boring her well i bore her recently she has shown it plainly in fact that is why i went away not to give myself but to give her a holiday my good sir said mr ridsdale earnestly almost irritably i can assure you she has spoken of you every day in the most affectionate terms regretting your absence saying how she missed you and so on has she said the general with a sigh that may have been from a sense of duty contrition, remorse. Pity for the old fogey, whose presence could but weary her. He got up, went to the drawing-room door, and opened it. Thank you, Cynthia. Charming. Don't stop playing. Please go on. And he shut the door again. Ridsdale, rising from the table also, had gone to the fireplace. He pulled out a cambric handkerchief and rubbed the palms of his hands with it. Then he put his hands in his pockets, and, standing with his back to the fire, turned towards the general, politely attentive to, if not cordially sympathetic with, the general's doubts and fears. "'Now look here, Ridsdale. That's all about it. I've given you the facts, and I ask you to help me.' "'Delighted! But how could I possibly—' "'Help me to find the man.' "'Why, I don't believe he exists.' "'Oh, yes, he does.' did your friend give you no hints of any kind none whatever ah just what i thought believe me it's some ridiculous misapprehension no my informant is not a fool or a person who supposes that i am lightly to be trifled with the general's manner had changed again the sadness had gone from his eyes and the wistfulness from his voice pride was the note that sounded now in the carefully suppressed voice he squared his big shoulders threw back his massive head and indeed looked somebody who would be extremely unlikely to be trifled with either by chance acquaintances or old friends i am a soldier and i think as soldiers used to think in the bygone days when we were taught that we ought to harden our thoughts until they become as undeviating as instincts if i'm called upon to guard and defend something placed in my charge the thought of what to do is an instinct to go out and meet the danger halfway. the safest method of defence is to deal promptly with the enemy that threatens now where is the enemy help me if you can His name has been withheld from me, for obvious reasons, and the general snorted scornfully. I am advised to be moderate, to avoid a scandal. It was a woman who wrote to me. It was Lady Jane, and he gave another snort. She didn't want to make mischief, as she calls it, and she implores me not to be old-fashioned. But I am old-fashioned. I'm not ashamed of it either. So old-fashioned that when I have found my man, I shall force him to give me satisfaction.' "'A duel?' "'Yes.' Mr. Ridsdale laughed deprecatingly. "'That's all very well, but really, Sir John, you can't put back the clock quite so far as that. This is 1912, not 1812, you know.' "'I don't care whether it is or it isn't.' Though he did not raise his voice, the general spoke with so much intensity that Ridsdale started. "'That may be, but, uh, Sir John, you don't easily get, uh, other people to share your opinions i'll get him to share them and that'll be enough for me ridsdale you're not a woman you needn't take your cue from lady jane and urge moderation at least you can guess at what i'm feeling yes but i think without cause quite without cause this century or the last it must be the same code when things dearer than life are at stake that's how i feel so you may guess if i'll follow the mode of nineteen twelve and seek aid from a private detective office or ask for reparation in a court of law no i'd never suggest that you should what i beg you what your best friend of either sex would beg you is not to do anything rash not to excite yourself needlessly in truth general beckford was exciting himself his voice vibrated harshly one could see the immense effort required to keep it at its low pitch he stared and glared shook his shaggy hair and looked altogether like some grey old lion who had been brought to bay in a cruel hunt and was ready to spring upon his closest tormentors all right ridsdale but help me don't preach to me there i swear i'll do nothing without thought i have thought i have thought it all out bring me face to face with my enemy "'I answer for the rest. "'Now who is he? "'We don't know so many people, she and I. "'Help me to run over their names, "'or, better still, use your brains on my behalf. "'She has been more or less under your observation lately. "'You must have seen her comings and goings, "'the people she was in touch with. "'Have you observed anything suspicious?' "'No, nothing whatever. "'Some too attentive visitor?' "'No?' "'It doesn't matter.' the general shook his grey mane and paced to and fro i'll find him unassisted and he stopped abruptly ridsdale so surely as i stand here i'll find that man and compel him to satisfy me ridsdale drew out the cambric handkerchief and passed it across his forehead then he laughed lightly general please forgive me for laughing but really when any one is so carried away by excitement well you yourself will laugh tomorrow when you remember the wild things you have said in your excitement you think that the fellow perhaps isn't a gentleman and that he may try to refuse i think that whether he is a gentleman or not he will certainly refuse to break the law of the land at your bidding yes but i'm prepared and the general smiled grimly and spoke with a kind of a sly triumph i shall ignore his refusal i shall put a pistol into his hand and make him fight oh i doubt it an unloaded revolver ridsdale don't you see i'll give him an unloaded revolver with six cartridges i'll have the same myself and i'll begin to load when he sees me load he'll know that he must do something if he means to save his skin when he sees me load my weapon he'll load his weapon too i shall watch him as a cat watches a mouse if he raises his arm up goes mine if he fires i fire we bang at each other at the same moment impossible why impossible if i get him alone he can't help himself he'd treat you as a madman give you in charge to the nearest policeman oh no he wouldn't i'd get between him and the door apart from the fact that it would be murder if you succeeded you wouldn't succeed.' "'I should. You don't know how the pressure of immediate peril quickens people's movements. Point by point I'd press him down the line I meant him to take. It's so simple, not a weak spot in the infallible logic of the thing. The clock would be put back as rapidly as if destiny moved its hands.' Ridsdale laughed again, very lightly. "'Look here,' said the general eagerly. "'Try it.' "'You don't understand what I mean. Let me show you what I mean. Act it with me.' "'Act it? I, I don't follow. Rehearse it. Let me show you how it works. We'll go through it point by point. And if you can show me a weak spot, I'll thank you with all my heart.' As he spoke, eagerly and enthusiastically, but still almost in a whisper, the general had hurried across to the chair that held his ugly leather bag. "'See here.' He had opened his bag, and the electric light flashed upon the bright metal of a pistol. Here, another one! And the light flashed again. A revolver for him, and for me. Now help me to reverse the trick. Here, take your weapon. You see it's open at the breech. He had come to the fireplace, and was offering one of the two revolvers. Mr. Ridsdale hesitated about taking it. Really, you know, General, I doubt if I ought to encourage you in. Catch hold— "'You're not afraid of firearms, are you?' "'And the general smiled. "'No, of course not.' Mr. Ridsdale took the pistol, and the general hurried across the room to the door that led into the hall. "'Watch me carefully,' he whispered. "'I am locking this door.' For the second time the aspect of the pleasant, comfortable room had altered. The prettiest things in it looked ungraceful, grim, forbidding. Its atmosphere—even the air one breathed—was different what was happening in the room seemed dreamlike grotesque quite unreal and this sense of unreality involved one's perception of the material unaltered world outside the room the sounds of music floated towards one as if from an immeasurable distance But probably the queer notion of unsubstantiability in surrounding objects was directly caused by the strangeness and oddness of the general's antics. He was no longer himself. He was a person acting a part, as it would be acted on a brilliantly lighted stage. See, he whispered, as he came creeping back toward the other bag, I have manoeuvred you into the worst possible position. I have cut you off from escape. That door is locked. "'This door I guard.' One could hardly hear one's heart beating above the far-off ripple of the music. "'Watch me,' said the general. "'Never take your eyes off my hands. See? Here are six cartridges. And I put them down. So, on your side of the table.' He stepped back, swiftly and cautiously. "'See? Here are six cartridges for me, on my side of the table.' And he sprang away to his old post in front of the drawing-room door. "'It is all fair play. I give as good a chance as I take myself. We stand at equal lengths from our ammunition. You follow it all, don't you? You catch my meaning?' Mr. Ridsdale, staring at his empty revolver, nodded. "'Very well. Now, if you value your life, prepare to defend it. See, I am going to load.' The general's acting was rather good, deriving stimulus from his natural emotions he achieved some fine artistic effects his flushed face his bent brows his fierce attitude and swift movements indicated the determination of implacable wrath and ridsdale too represented his assumed character well enough his cheeks were livid his breath came gaspingly the hand that carried the revolver shook perceptibly Altogether, an excellent simulation of surprise, apprehensive doubts, if not of craven fear. One. The general had crept to the table, taken a cartridge, and was slipping it into the chamber. There, he whispered. Automatically, you have done it too. I told you so. Wait. Lift your hand at your peril. My turn. Two. Ridsdale, copying the general's slight movement, was loading as the general loaded three that's it three left when you take the last step back i'll not raise my arm till you are back on the hearth i swear it four the music had ceased but neither of them noticed in a silence broken only by the sound of panting respirations they loaded the fifth and sixth cartridges and simultaneously sprang away from the table now the general had been the quicker his arm was up now answer me the ferocity in the hissing words was terrible to hear are you the man i i upon my word i I don't understand such folly you blackguard this is not acting the concentrated passion behind the words seemed to send forth waves that struck one's beating heart with flame and ice now answer me or so help me god i'll shoot you then the drawing-room door opened the general instinctively dropping his arm and turning shouted at his wife go back go back i tell you there was a blaze as if all the electric lamps had exploded and a crash that seemed to shake the walls then again came the flash and the roar mr ridsdale had fired twice for a moment the room was full of smoke then the dusty cloud rose grew thin the lamplight shining unimpeded showed general beckford still upon his feet standing square and erect with cynthia desperately clinging to his breast what's this said the general loudly and sternly has the smoke blinded you cynthia why have you come to me your place is not here go to your lover's arms but she clung to him closer she was stretching her tender figure to its fullest height "'trying to cover his limbs with her limbs, "'his face with her face, "'madly straining to make a shield "'of trembling flesh "'large enough to protect him from danger. "'The coward!' she wailed. "'The miserable coward! "'He shot at you when you weren't looking. "'He tried to kill you.' "'Then get out of the way,' said the general, "'and let him try again. "'Can't you see how you're hampering him? "'This is his chance and yours. "'Don't spoil it. "'Let him set you free.' "'But Cynthia only trembled sobbed and clung very well and the general laughed harshly we have been interrupted and my opponent must kindly understand that his chance is gone cynthia do you hear he won't shoot again now stop whimpering and answer me yes i want to tell you everything is this man your lover no no but he has endeavoured to be yes then why has he remained here I was afraid to send him away.' "'Why? What are you afraid of?' "'You! I thought if you knew you'd do something dreadful.' It was curious, but it seemed as if suddenly these two—the husband and the wife—were quite alone. If the man they spoke of had been swept a thousand miles from the room, they could not have disregarded him more completely than they did now. Cynthia had linked her hands round the general's neck. She was looking up into his stern, unflinching eyes. Her voice was strong and clear as she answered each question. "'When did he first insult you?' Two days ago.' "'But you knew what he meant before that.' "'No, I didn't. I knew he admired me, and I thought it rather amusing. But I never dreamed he would dare. And then, when he did dare, I thought if you heard or guessed it would be too dreadful. I blamed myself.' yes i blamed myself but i thought it was only two days and then he'd be gone for ever with no fuss and no scandal my darling don't you believe me is there nothing else to tell the general was glaring down into his wife's eyes before god that is all oh don't you believe me before god i do very gently sir john released himself from the clinging hands held one of them for a moment then, bowing ceremoniously, kissed it. "'Mr. Ridsdale!' His manner was perfectly calm as he turned to the ignored guest, and he spoke quietly but heavily, with an old-fashioned style of humour that was too pompous to be quite successful. "'My wife called you a coward just now. But, honestly, I could not apologise if she had called you a fool as well. Those are blank cartridges that we have been playing with, oh yes it would have been dangerous otherwise but i'm always careful in fact when i have to deal with gentlemen of your kidney i'm almost as afraid of firearms as you are yourself and apropos the hall door is open i didn't really lock it mr ridsdale silently crossed the room then good-night to you yates will be back directly and when he has packed your things where shall he take them Uh, uh, Ah, say uh, the St. Pancras Hotel, and I may send your check to that address. Thank you. Good night. End of story four.